Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Our first scripture reading comes from Exodus, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, verses, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It starts off by saying, As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them, Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So we are doing a series called God in Science. Each week we are looking at the various ways that we see God revealed to us through the field and the study of science. And last week I talked about this idea of how in our society there is a very clear division between the people who are religious particularly those who are Christian, and the people who believe in science. And I said the whole point of this series is to see how these two things come together, that they complement one another, that they don't have to be separate. And so I said the point is I want you to be able to go out and have conversations with people who might not otherwise be willing to look at religion as something that they should have in their lives to show how these two things can be put together. And on your way out, some of you came up to me and said, that's a wonderful idea, Alex, but who exactly should I be talking to about that? And if you want an idea of who you should be talking to, talk to your children and your grandchildren. Because those are the people, particularly people of my generation and younger, I guarantee you they're putting all their eggs in the basket of science. And so... My hope is is that you would be willing to sit down and have those conversations. Those are important conversations to have because I feel like you're missing out on a whole part of life that you could be having, much less holistic, if all you focus on is science. These two things are much better when they're held together in tandem with each other. So I hope you will go out and have those conversations with your children, with your grandchildren. Those are important conversations to have. And if you don't have any of those, go out and talk to your friends because I'm sure you have some friends who are in the same category. Today, we are going to be talking about what I think is fundamentally at the core of the Christian faith, something that I think we all have to understand in order to actually say, yes, I too am a Christian. And to get into what this theme is for today, I would like to tell you a story. This story begins in a little outcrop of land found 
in the Black Sea, known as the Crimean Peninsula. Crimean Peninsula. Now, you all are probably familiar with the Crimean Peninsula because back in 2015, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, he stepped in and he sent Russian troops in to the Crimean Peninsula in order to what we would say annex. He wanted to take the land back for Russia. Now, he, of course, denied that he was doing this. He said, oh, that's not what I'm doing at all, right? He said, I'm going to send in troops because I want to make sure that all the Russians who live in Crimea in the midst of all the political unrest in Ukraine, that they're going to be okay. And so everybody said, sure, go for it. That's great. But of course, what happened is those troops that are now in Crimea, they haven't left yet. So clearly he was bluffing about that. But the fact is that Vladimir Putin, he is on the latest leader in a long line of leaders to try to claim the Crimean Peninsula as their own. That peninsula has been captured and recaptured dozens of times throughout the centuries. And what I want to focus on today is one time when it was captured in 1347 as Mongolian troops came down from Asia, swept into Crimea, and wanted to strip it away from the Ottoman Empire. So I want to set the scene for you. These Mongolians, they are on, they're on horses, they're making their way down into the Crimean Peninsula, and pretty much they take over everything with ease. There's no problem until they get to this area known as Kaffa. Now Kaffa, you can see it right there, it's circled. It was the last outpost in the area where Italian merchants sold their goods. So these Italian merchants, they had set up there, and of course, Kaffa, because there's these merchants, was very wealthy. They were heavily fortified. So it was really hard for these Mongolian warriors to get in to the city of Kaffa. So the battle's going on, and eventually these Italian merchants, they sit there and they say to themselves, you know what, probably not going to go our way in the long run. So they pack up all their stuff, they throw it onto boats, and they take off sailing towards Italy to head back home. What they did not know is that stowed away on those ships were rodents, mice and rats, who were carrying a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. Yersinia pestis is better known as bubonic plague, or black death. Now the way that those rats and mice got onto the ship with Yersinia pestis is that when the Mongolians came down, they brought it with them. And just so you know, Yersinia pestis, it is transmitted via fleas. So these men, they had fleas on their clothes, they had it on their animals, they had it on their goods. <clears throat> and so they're fighting this battle at Kaffa, and all of a sudden all these men in the army start to die from bubonic plague. So what they do is they take the bodies of these men and chuck them over the walls of Kaffa. And so what ends up happening is the fleas go to the bodies, they take some of the blood out, then they jump on the mice and the rats, and then the rats, they jump onto the boats, and they're like, we're going to go sailing too. So they take off and head towards Italy. And so they get there, the Italian merchants, they get off the boats, and of course they're like, we're all safe. And then the rodents get off the boats too, because they're happy, and they go on to land, and of course what happens immediately? Bubonic plague starts to spread. Now, what's interesting about this is that initially they thought, oh, it's going to be okay. No big deal. It's not going to be, it's not going to spread very much because it started and then it stopped. 
but that's because they went into winter. And of course, in wintertime, fleas are dormant. But when the springtime came around, fleas woke back up, they started reproducing, and of course, the plague began to spread. From 1347 to 1352, 25 million people died from bubonic plague. 25 million, that's a third of the population of Europe. They went from 75 million people down to 50 million people. Now, one of the reasons why it was so bad is because the classic understanding of the disease at the time was, if you want to prevent yourself from getting this, you probably shouldn't breathe in all that fresh country air. Stay away from all that, because that's really what's going to keep you well. So what they did was they gathered together inside of their houses, which of course allowed these fleas to have a field day because they could just jump from one host to the next. They were super happy. And of course the plague spread and it was very bad. Had they stayed isolated inside of their own homes, the plague would have died out much more quickly. But what's interesting is that the medical specialists who have studied this particular bubonic plague, they have said that the death toll should have been much, much higher than it actually was. Because when you look at the frequency, the amount of people who were gathered together, the number of people, and the fact that they're inside these homes, basically there should have been a lot more deaths than there was. So clearly people were getting bitten by fleas that had bubonic plague and they weren't dying. And so the question that they started asking these medical historians is, why? Why did that happen? Well, the answer was found in pre-revolutionary America. So I grew up in a town called Fredericksburg, Virginia. Fredericksburg is a Revolutionary War town, a lot of early American history. And because of that, there's all of these heroes, war heroes from that Revolutionary War that come from our town. One guy's name was Hugh Mercer. Hugh Mercer. He was a general in the Revolutionary War. That statue of him is actually right smack dab in the center of our town. My elementary school was named after this guy. We were called Hugh Mercer Elementary. Now, Hugh Mercer, before he became a general in the war, he was the owner of an apothecary shop in Fredericksburg. Now, an apothecary is essentially a medical dispensary. It's where people went to get their drugs. It was where surgeons would go to get supplies, that type of thing. Today, what would we call it? We call that a, a pharmacy. Well, what was interesting is that at Hugh Mercer Elementary School, every year it was customary for the first graders to take a field trip to Hugh Mercer's apothecary shop. Now, I remember this trip very, very clearly because they take you in, and they walk you around inside of his shop. And of course, they're telling you about all of the most cutting-edge technology they had at the time to deal with their illnesses that were going on. So they showed you things like jars of leeches, which is something that they use very often in order to treat diseases. They had powders that were made from plants and ground-up animal parts. And of course, the thing that I really remember seeing the most are the bleeders. Have you ever heard of bleeders before? If you haven't, this is what they look like right here. That's a bleeder. So what they would do is they would take this wonderful little device, they would stick it on their arms or on their legs, and they would intentionally slice themselves open. This practice, known as bloodletting, 
was done because what they believed at the time was that humans had what they called humors in their body. And in order to keep these humors in balance, you needed to let certain fluids out of your body, like blood and things like that, so that you would have the right amount of balance so that you wouldn't get ill or you wouldn't get sickness. Because the best way to prevent illness and sickness is by cutting yourself open all the time, right? I mean, that makes total sense. Now, to our modern way of thinking, clearly doing that is ridiculous because not only does it really hurt to cut yourself open like that, but you could get infections. It's not like they were cleaning that thing off every time after they were done with it, right? But interestingly, if you read some of the literature from the day, people who talk about using this, they did say that they felt a lot better. And you could say, well, is that because they just believed that it was going to make them better? Actually, they've done studies and they realized, no, there's a really good reason why many of them felt better after doing this. And that's because a number of people who came over from Europe and from England had a genetic disease called hemochromatosis. Now, hemochromatosis is essentially when your body, it retains too much iron from the food that you eat. And that iron, it gets stored up in your liver, it gets stored in your heart, and it can actually cause you to get diabetes. It can kill you if you don't deal with it. Now, the way that we deal with hemochromatosis today, because some people have that, the way that you deal with it is you go to your doctor, and you know what your doctor does? The doctor sits there and inserts an IV in you and actually lets your blood just drip out. Because the way that you deal with hemochromatosis is by bleeding, it forces your body to regenerate new blood, and it balances out your iron levels. So as crazy as it sounds, this concept of bleeders, right, cutting yourself up, actually made a difference to these people because so many of them had hemochromatosis. Of course, the question is, why did so many of them have this genetic disease? And they realized that it goes back to the bubonic plague. For you see, while all those people in Europe were getting bitten by fleas that had the plague and were dying, there was a certain subset of people who weren't getting affected by the disease. And those are people who had hemochromatosis because the iron in their body, that excess iron, prevented the bacteria from infecting their lymph nodes. Couldn't get into it. So they were unaffected by it. So there was actually a whole town in England that had this disease. Everybody in the town had it. Not a single one of them died. And so, in 1352, after 25 million people have been wiped out by the plague, who's left? Well, a lot of people who have this disease. And of course, a few hundred years later, what happens? Those people, their ancestors, they get on boats and they start traveling to America, which is why we end up seeing this whole thing come together with pre-revolutionary America. So, why have I told you this story? Well, I've told you this story because there is a concept in evolutionary biology that says that only the strong survive. Have you ever heard of this phrase, survival of the fittest? Sure you have, right? Now, survival of the fittest, that's in relationship to the evolution of species. And basically, it goes like this, very simple. The strong will survive and pass on their genes, and the weak will perish, not being able to do the same. But that's not necessarily true. What we're coming to realize is that, in fact, when a species, like the human race, 
finds themselves in unfavorable conditions, it is usually a weakness that we have that allows us to survive. So, in the example we just talked about, when everybody is getting bitten by fleas that have bubonic plague, if you're a healthy person, like you don't have any genetic problems, no problems whatsoever, guess what? You're going to die. But if you have hemochromatosis, a disease that under normal circumstances nobody wants, then guess what? You're going to live. And this is what we keep finding over and over again, is that your weakness all of a sudden becomes a strength when it comes to evolution. And so many evolutionary biologists, they no longer say survival of the fittest. They say survival of the sickest. Because it's the sickest that keep making it through a lot of these issues. So, another great example of this, very easy, sickle cell anemia. So sickle cell, what is sickle cell anemia? Sickle cell is when your red blood cells are shaped like a sickle. You can see it right there. It's not a full cell. Now, the problem with this is that if you have sickle cell anemia, then it doesn't oxygenate your whole body. You can't get oxygen to your body. But if you happen to live in Africa, where there's a lot of mosquito-borne malaria, you want sickle cell anemia, because that means you're not going to die. If you're a normal, healthy person, normal blood cells, right, that look like this, then guess what? You're going to get infected with malaria. But if you have sickle cell, it's your best friend, because that means you can survive. And so what this all comes down to is that in nature, your greatest weakness can very quickly become your biggest strength. And since we believe that God is the one who is responsible for creating all nature, it should come as no surprise that we find this exact same pattern in Christianity. God is always trying to take our weakness and use it as a strength. Let's take a look at our two examples today from the Bible. Do you remember the first one? What did we read about? Moses. Thank you. So we read about Moses. So God comes to Moses and, and he says, look, I want you to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And what does Moses say? Uh, I don't know. I appreciate you asking, but I'm not a very eloquent speaker, so, you know, maybe not me. And God says, don't worry. I'll be with you. It's going to be fine. No big deal. And then Moses comes back. We didn't read this. I actually really love this exchange, by the way. He comes back and he's like, I don't think you're getting me, God. I don't really want to do this. <laughs> and God comes in and God gets upset, and God says, look, you may not be perfect, but you're the one I want. We're going to take your weakness, and we're going to use that as a strength. And that's what happens, right? The next five books of the Bible, or the next four, four books, this guy steps up, and he's able to help out the Israelites. Same thing in the scripture we read with Jesus. So Jesus, he's walking along, right? He goes, and he finds his disciples. Now, who does he choose as his disciples? Who, what do they do for a living? fishermen, right? That's a bold choice to choose these guys who are going to take over your movement once you're done. Because these guys are not exactly well educated, they don't have very much money, and they're not politically connected. Usually, if you want somebody to take over your movement, you probably want somebody who's the best and the brightest, the most gifted, right? But that's not Jesus' strategy. No, he chooses people who are greatly flawed. People who are probably going to fail. And yet, what happens? They made it. They did it. These guys, he entrusted everything to a bunch of uneducated fishermen, and we're sitting here today 
talking about it. The Bible is full of examples. It's riddled with examples of God taking the weak links, the no goods, the B team, the people who you assume are going to fail and turning it around and using their weakness as strength and helping them to do the impossible. And it's not just in the Bible that you see this happening. This happens in real life all the time. Just look at the Cubs. I mean, come on. (laughs) 108 years walking in the wilderness. They take the weakness. Use it as a strength. Right? But let me give you a real example. One, One that actually you can relate to in your life. Now, I don't know how many of you in here would say that you grew up in a stressful environment. I don't know how many of you in here would say that you grew up in a chaotic environment. But let's say that you did. Let's say you grew up in an environment that was a little bit stressful, a little bit chaotic. Maybe it's even abusive. The people who grow up in environments like that, they tend to seek control for their lives. And this control that they're looking for, it comes out in compulsive ways. It's called compulsivity. Now, this compulsivity, it can go in one of two ways. So a negative way of being compulsive could be, let's say you go out and you start using drugs or you start drinking too much. That's a very common way for people who are compulsive to start dealing with the chaos in their lives. Or let's say you get an eating disorder or perhaps you start cutting yourself. This is a very common way too. Or you get a sexual addiction. These are ways that people who are seeking control in their lives, they look for control, right? But then there are some people who have the same compulsivity, but yet they use it for positive good. So here's an example. You will find that there's some people who end up who have compulsivity. They go and they're very good at focusing on their studies. They're very good at getting good grades. They're really good at their sports. They're really good at their creative activities. And what you find is that these people who have struggled in their home in all this chaos, they tend to be people who are very good at being successful in their life because they've channeled this compulsivity into something that is good for them. And this is an example of God taking something that is negative or bad, a weakness, and using it for good. But let's say that you're still struggling with your weakness. Let's say that you maybe are drinking a little bit too much, more than you should. Let's say that you're taking some pills that you know you shouldn't be taking. Let's say that you are struggling with an eating disorder right now, or Let's say that you do have a sexual addiction. Maybe you're looking at pornography when you shouldn't be. I don't want you to feel bad about not having been able to overcome your weakness. Because the truth is that if you're willing to struggle, if you're willing to work at it, if you're willing to try to get to the other side, you're going to find that that creates a blueprint for a meaningful life. Some of the most impressive people I have ever met in my life are people who have struggled the most with their weaknesses. Because once they're on the other side, there are these great people who have so much empathy for those who are struggling, and they understand what it means to go through hard times. So because of the mistakes they went through due to their weakness, once they're on the other side of that, they have this great strength of character. Now, I can tell you that I can count on one hand the number of people who I have met 
who have transformed their weakness into strength by their own willpower. There are very, very few people who can do that. But the vast majority of people I have met, they need something more than that to transform their weakness into strength. And I think you need three things. First thing you need is God. The second thing you need is a personal desire to change. And the third thing you need is a supportive community and a supportive environment. Now, why God? Why is that important? Because the truth is, is that God, if God's going to transform your weakness into strength, God has to soften your heart so that you can admit that you have a weakness. When I look in this room, do you know what I see? I see a lot of successful people. I see people who have done very well for themselves. And because of that, when you're a successful person, it's very hard to admit that you have weakness. I mean, many of you come in here, and the truth is we want to put on an air that everything is okay. So we want to look polished. We want to look put together. And so it's hard for us to admit, yes, I have weakness. I have these problems. But if God softens your heart and you're willing to say, yeah, I got this issue, then maybe you'll have the personal desire to want to overcome it because that's where God comes in as well. God tells you it's time to overcome this thing. And that's where you need the supportive environment because you can't do it by yourself. I want to tell you something that God has put on my heart, what I want this church to be. I want this church to be a place where people can come in here and they can be open and honest about their faults and their flaws. I want this to be a place where we can be vulnerable with each other and not worry about being judged. And part of the reason I stand up here and I am so motivated to be transparent and honest with you is that I want to model that for you. That's why two weeks ago, I talked about this idea of how I struggle with my intelligence as a person. That's something that I've always had a struggle with. And how I struggle with feeling adequate as a person and particularly as a pastor. It's why I'll stand up here and I'll tell you every so often that I'm not the best father to my two sons. And I'm not the best husband to my wife. These are things that I really have to work on to do better at in my life. And it's why you'll always hear me stand up here and say, I don't really know what it means to follow Jesus in the way that we should. I can show you the way, because he tells us how to do it. But I'm a long way off from doing it well myself. I'm not very good at loving God and loving others. It's something that I continually have to struggle with. And so I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that my life is perfect. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have it all together because I don't. And I will continue to tell you about my weaknesses because in telling you about my weakness, I know that I will find strength because together we lift each other up. This is a place where we come together and I want everybody to sit there and say, you know what, I struggle with that too. And together with God's help, we're going to get to the other side of this one way or another. And so I end this morning by saying to you that my prayer for you is that you might live into your weakness. Don't shy away from your faults and your flaws because like hemochromatosis, that is the very thing that's going to save you in the long run. Let's be a community that comes together, we stand up, and we admit that we have faults and flaws. We admit that we have weaknesses. We own our issues. And we say, you know what? I struggle with that. This is something I have a difficulty with. And I need your help 
if I'm going to transform that weakness into strength. And if we are willing to do that again and again and again and be there for each other, then I truly believe that that is the moment when God is going to start using us in ways we never imagined possible. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.